the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Chalcedon Report Number 134, October 1976 The doctrine of selective depravity creates a political order and a law structure after its own image. In an earlier era, when kings and noblemen ruled, and again in the age of aristocracy, it was a common conviction that the rabble were incapable of morality and order unless kept firmly in check by a powerful force. Intelligence, virtue, responsibility, and the ability to rule were powers communicated by blood and rank. Later, this idea of a ruling elite took various other forms. The Germans, Anglo-Saxons, the whites, the workers, the Freemasons, and so on, and now it is gaining modern forms in Asia and Africa, for such ideas have long existed. Marxism, of course, holds militantly to one version of this faith. We have seen that the final implication of the doctrine of selective depravity is salvation by murder. Eliminate the evil group. Of course, re-education is often attempted first, but in a society of failures, as in Marxism and fascism, there must be a sacrificial victim for the continued failures. The evil class or race must therefore be purged. In the meantime, however, the people are told that their political order is their savior and that salvation is a matter of law. And in democracies, this also means elections. Elect the right people who will pass the right laws and salvation will arrive or be accomplished. More Social Security, Medicare, more taxes on the rich, or middle classes or poor. More this and that kind of legislation and paradise will begin. This program of salvation by law means legislating against certain people in favor of other people. It means legislating against the rich, the poor, the middle classes, this or that race or class, or whatever group is defined as evil. It is easy, of course, for the devout believers in the doctrine of selective depravity to catalog the sins of the evil class. We all have our share of sins. On one trip, a man tried hard to convince me of the special depravity of the oil companies and the international bankers. All our problems and evils he traced to them. When I tried to present a biblical doctrine of sin, he was rude, arrogant, and hostile. I had a duty to keep quiet and listen to him, or else I would lead people astray with my ignorance. Later, his wife apologized for what I learned was his chronic behavior and added, I don't know anything about the oil companies and bankers, 
but I do know from living with my husband that they have no monopoly on sin. Exactly. There is no monopoly on sin. No class, race, or group has a corner on the sin market, although all nowadays seem to be trying. Legislation as well as thinking, which has as its premise the doctrine of selective depravity, not only denies the facts about all men, but it denies the very idea of justice. True justice, God's justice, requires that we be blind to the people involved but alive to God's requirements. It is in this sense that justice is blind, blind to human prejudices, partisanships, and claims, but alive to the law of God. God declares, You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. Leviticus 19.15 We are not justified before God's law by our estate, rich or poor, believer or unbeliever, clergyman or layman. Our estate is not a determining factor, but God's law is at all times to govern all men. At the same time, we cannot, in rigorously applying God's law, forget that we are also under it, and that the person on trial is our neighbor. We cannot treat him as a different kind of humanity in whom selective depravity is operative. As the old expression has it, we are to remember, there but for the grace of God go I. The doctrine of selective depravity overthrows justice because it legislates in terms of class, race, or group. It declares a segment of humanity to be the depraved element by nature because of their membership in a class, race, or group. Injustice then becomes a way of life, as it is now in varying degrees all over the earth. Moreover, if we believe that some of the group is the selectively depraved group, then it easily follows that they will decide that we are the selectively depraved blight upon the earth. Present-day economic and political thought begins and ends on the whole in terms of the doctrine of selective depravity. The returns are now coming in. Politics has long operated on this premise of selective depravity. Now more and more people are concluding that the depraved class is the political one, politicians and bureaucrats. Terrorists are increasingly in evidence everywhere, and political assassinations are becoming common, because the true believer in selective depravity believes finally in salvation by murder. The solution is then simple. Kill the men of the establishment, and freedom and paradise will be born. Hence, death to the pigs, or death to the establishment in its every form. Salvation by murder becomes a passionate faith and hope, and I do mean passionate, as I have often seen. For example, on one occasion I argued with a university student who believed in selective depravity. He lost his temper and began to shout that all the pigs in power should be killed, and I should be prevented from going around the country corrupting people. It does not take too much pressure for such people, whatever their politics, to express their demands for murder. Consider then what hard times will do to many of them. It will push them over the edge in demands for revolutionary or for repressive reactionary actions. 
salvation by murder will become a faith in action. Reasoning with such will not work. The premise of their thinking, whatever their professed politics of religion, is a false doctrine of man, a doctrine of selective depravity. Nothing short of a return to the total word of God can give men and nations a new direction. Calcedon Report number 135, November 1976. In recent months, I have bought and read four new books on Mary, Queen of Scots. My reason for this is that Mary is a symbolic figure, one who epitomizes much of the modern world and who accordingly has a passionately loyal following to our own day. I find, in fact, at times an intense feeling about Mary among a wide variety of peoples. Perhaps Madeline Bingham is right. Mary, Queen of Scots, page 1. Those who die well attract the courtesies of history. The Christian martyrs then and now, however, have attracted no such loyalty. Perhaps Antonia Fraser is right that Mary was more sinned against than sinning. But Mary began early what one biographer has politely termed a course of prevarication. She continued her course with adulteries and murder, while maintaining an amazing self-righteousness through it all. In marrying the Dauphin of France, Francois, she lied to the Scottish delegates and signed away the Scottish succession to the French. Bingham sees this as contributing to her troubles and death in a central way. She tried to apply the divine right of kings to Scotland, which was alien to the dogma. She was so foolish in her speech that she spoke of her mother-in-law, Catherine de Medici, as a woman descended from shopkeepers, a slur that queen took action against when Francois died. Mary had a gift for making enemies and assuming that charm and tears could remedy the matter. An English ambassador saw her rule in Scotland as suicidal to Mary's interest. Her two marriages there were to be kindly very foolish blunders. Having lost her kingdom in battle finally, she sought refuge where all her friends advised her not to go, in England. She had made herself a rival claimant to the throne of England, and then a focal point of continuing conspiracy and rebellion, and yet Mary foolishly placed her hopes on charming Elizabeth's just fears away by personal confrontation. That her execution was so many years in coming was due to Queen Elizabeth's horror of shedding royal blood. Mary's dying words showed self-righteousness and also courage. On the other hand, her appeal is understandable. She had beauty, charm, and remarkable courage. Although years before her death, both the Vatican and the Scottish Kirk had given her up as incorrigible, she died confident in her faith and with an amazing physical and spiritual fortitude. It is easy to understand why the Romantic revival made so great a heroine out of Mary. But my interest in Mary is because of her modernity, because she exemplifies an aspect of sin in every age and an aspect of modern man in particular. Bingham, who dislikes Knox and likes Mary, says all the same. Mary was constitutionally devoid of either fundamental sincerity or natural prudence. Page 69. 
The problem lies deeper, and Bingham's judgment must be held in abeyance until we can recognize that Mary saw herself as outside the law, and openly said so. In part, she based this on the divine right of kings, but in part also she based it on her Renaissance humanism. Her view of life, law, politics, and people was totally personal. Her interest was not in a cause, but in herself. The kind of humanism she manifested came to focus finally in Max Stirner's The Ego and His Own, the classic statement of total anarchism. Roy Strong explains Mary thus, Her behavior was always conditioned by her upbringing, and she thought of government and policy in terms of personal intrigues and armoires which motivated politics at the Valois Court, Mary Queen of Scots, page 72. Not law, but an anarchic personal concern governed her every action. Strong is right. This was the reason for all her disasters. But what about her faith, to which she witnessed so eloquently before being beheaded? One pope renounced her and Knox denounced her. Some in her day at her death saw her as a saint, others as a devil. The truth is, Mary was very much like all of us. Where her faith was concerned, she practiced the principle of selective obedience. She was obedient to God and true to her faith when it suited her to be so. At such a time, she was more zealous in her defense of it than most of us ever are. But we have this in common with her. For the most part, we, in our time, practice a very selective obedience. We, of course, cannot put people to death as she did, for example, the poet Chesterlord, but we are no less hostile to those who cross us and as ready to regard our sins and lust as somehow excusable ones. Mary's principle of selective obedience made her faith inoperative in the rule of her kingdom. It was her passions which ruled her in the kingdom and brought disasters to both. It is also the modern Christian selective obedience which makes his faith inoperative and ineffectual in our world today. Such a professing believer may claim to believe the Bible from cover to cover, but his selective obedience makes him a practical and practicing humanist. If we are honest with ourselves, we would have to say that Mary is the real patron saint of today's Catholics and Protestants alike, because we are so radically selective in our faithfulness to God and our obedience to His law. Even more, to denounce Mary, we must first denounce ourselves and our flagrant practice of selective obedience. It is childish to blame various persons for Mary's disaster. Her biographers at this point are more or less agreed. She did it to herself. The same is true of us. Whatever enemies we or our cause may have, we have our selective obedience to thank for our plight. We are doing it to ourselves. After all, the principle of selective obedience means also selective disobedience to God. Even more, it has implicit in it the principle of total disobedience and revolt. It says in effect, not thy will, O Lord, but mine be done. The Prince de Ling is said to have replied when his wife asked if he had been faithful to her frequently. She was hardly likely to be happy with that answer. If we can give no better answer to God, he is hardly likely to be any more pleased with us 
than the princess was with the prince de Ling. We are then humanists, not Christians. Our condition is more than sin. It is lawlessness. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown us by his pain, the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. 
We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.